wisdom is, you know, very much embedded in the concrete realities of the everyday. If it's not, I don't think it's actually God's wisdom. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, a place for gathering wise conversations about living well along the journey with Jesus. My name is Casey Tigert. I'm a pastor and author, spiritual director, and host of this podcast. So if you're a subscriber, thanks for listening. Uh, if this is your first time, uh, I'm glad that you came along. Uh, today's conversation is well worth it. Uh, today we're talking with Jen Pollock michelle and Jen is a friend of mine, and she is now a Canadian. Uh, well, she's she was born in America. She lived in Chicago for a long time. She and her family moved to Canada. Uh, she's an author and part of something called the Red Bud Writers Guild, which is a group of uh, female Christian authors that is doing great work right now. Uh, Jen is the author of two books. One is called Teach Us to Want. That's about desire. And uh, we don't, you know, Christianity, we don't talk about desire unless we're talking about it in a bad way, like all desires are bad. But she talks about uh, healthy desire. And I think that's a fantastic topic. And everybody else apparently did too, because when the book came out, it was a Christianity Today Book of the Year award winner. Uh, she's also the author of a book called Keeping Place that's about home. And she's writing a new book, as she's going to talk about in the conversation, uh, that will probably be out and you can find that on her website or on Amazon. I'll, I'll have information about her in the show notes. But as you listen to Jen, there's an intelligence and a generosity that she brings to this conversation that I think is really, really helpful. And so hopefully she will challenge you a bit. Hopefully she'll give you some energy as well as you listen to it. So because of all that, I'm going to stop blabbing and just get to the conversation with my friend, Jen Pollock, Michelle. Well, hey, Jen. Hey. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good. I'm glad you decided to jump on. And, uh, you know, first things first, um, we're obviously everybody in America is moving to Canada at some point. So my hope is, um, am I, can I stay with you when that happens? <laughs> you absolutely can. Now we have reservations now backed up. So <laughs> I know we're everybody, you know, it's funny because we are American and we moved to Toronto in 2011 and everyone said, how did you know? Like, you know, we had some sort of like, I don't know, crystal ball that indicated we should move to Canada, um, which is not the reason why we moved here, but we're super, super thankful to be here. It definitely played out well for you and has continued to play out well over the last few years. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and I definitely would I definitely would have come back to your move and your transition to uh, up into the north, the great north country, uh, where I will be here in, in just a little while, too. But um, I'm not moving. I'm just going to be visiting. So that's a cool thing. But um, okay. <laughs> I always want to ask anybody who comes on and, and people who have come on before, uh, we talk about wisdom and the collective voices that help us to grow. So you've been writing and speaking in different places. So I'm assuming you, you've got your hands around this a little bit. If you had to define wisdom, where would you, where would you start? You know, I'd start with the very simple definition in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I think that just kind of introduces a frame in our lives to say that, you know, wisdom isn't necessarily contained all within ourselves, that we have to, 
embrace the idea that there is a very big God um, and a faith that invites us into his mystery. Like there, that's actually sort of the subject that I'm writing on now for a book. Um, that's my current book project to just think about the mysteries of God, the paradoxes of Christian faith. And so I don't think wisdom means having everything figured out, having the answers to every question that someone might ask or that you might yourself raise, but the fear of the Lord. And I think there's, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit like Moses standing before the burning bush and you take a closer look, you pause, you take your shoes off because you recognize that you are in the presence of a holy God. And so there's all that in wisdom for me. There's humility, um, a kind of a, a modesty about being human, and certainly a submission to a wisdom other than my own. So uh, what I like about that is you, know, you talk about the fear of the Lord as the beginning, but I've always, I've always felt like there's a, there's a push point right there because what does that look like if I'm a, if I'm a single mom who's working uh, two jobs to try and put things together. How does that wisdom really play mm. out in, in what I do? What does it look like to live in that? The beginning of that wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But when I'm stepping into this spot of high tension, high challenge, uh, how does that, how does a person wrap their hands around that? I think one way of thinking about it is that God's wisdom is intensely practical. You know, and I think we do a great disservice to pastor, lead, speak, preach, and, and not communicate that, that God's word doesn't touch us in the most practical points of our lives, you know. So there's, I think for me, you know, the book of Proverbs is wisdom literature, and it's all these very practical kind of aphorisms about what does it look like to be God's people and to live into his wisdom. And um, I guess that's that's what I would want to say is that I think the scripture is full of practical wisdom. I think the challenge, like I said, I, I mean, I'm actually almost speaking this to myself because it's so easy as a teacher of scripture to sort of delve into the really fun sort of theoretical things about it. But you're right that the person who's sitting there listening has to be able to understand what is, what, what is next, you know, for me in terms of my family or in terms of where we live or how we parent our children or what our budget looks like. And um, I think for me personally, too, that's often where God drives, you know, in my own prayer life, you know, where sometimes I'd like to sort of think more theoretic in theoretical ways. And God's like, no, let's really talk about your relationship right now with one of your 10-year-old twin sons and how, you know, you're talking to him. So I guess those are some of my initial thoughts when I think about that single woman working two jobs. Gosh, I hope she goes to church. I hope she opens the scriptures and see that God wants to speak into that. Yeah. And, and finding, finding where the line is between, um, because I love what you're saying, because it always is the teaching preaching that leads to living, breathing, kicking, screaming, all that good stuff. The, hoping that whoever it is that's giving that is is drawing the line from knowledge to wisdom, because they aren't the same thing. That's what I'm picking up from you. That mm. Knowledge and wisdom are not the same thing. Right. 
I think ideas and wisdom aren't the same thing, you know, and, and there's so much, so much has been made of this recently by, you know, people a lot smarter than me just to talk about that we, we sort of live in, in our minds, you know, we live at the level of theory, even in our faith. And that's doing a disservice um, to us and to the people that we lead, you know, and especially it's, it's actually a betraying what the gospel really is to say that God became man, that he actually took on flesh and lived the realities of our everyday lives. There's no temptation, no, no grief that he does not know. And so that's actually where God meets us. You know, like that's what John 1 tells us. He pitched his tent in our neighborhood. Unfortunately, we forget that. You know, I think we make faith kind of an abstraction, you know, and knowledge in a lot of ways gives us a sense of control. If we only talk on the level of ideas, that's, that's there's something sort of sanitized and easy and tidy about that. But as soon as you actually start to um, look to talk about the realities of everyday life, gosh, it gets messy, right? Because then you're entering into human experience and the complexity of what it means to be human and to walk in a world that's broken and fallen. So um, I think you're absolutely right. That is what I'm saying. Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is, you know, very much embedded in the concrete realities of the everyday. If it's not, I don't think it's actually God's wisdom. Yeah. Has there been a, because you've gone through some transitions, uh, obviously moving from the States to Canada, you have a family, you've watched, uh, those of us who have kids, you've watched the stage transitions and how I feel like I learn more with my daughter, every time she hits a new growth stage, I learn more about myself uh, in the way I react to that. I mean, being a father of a daughter is already a really awesome and petrifying and <laughs> unique kind of situation. Um, I feel like I learn more about myself from that. So you've gone through both the transitions of seeing your children grow. You've gone through the transitions of uh, moving to a different country um, and then also uh sort of becoming a writer of, um, you know, in 2015, you had the Christianity Today Book of the Year Award for Teach Us to Want, uh, which if you're listening, you haven't read that yet, you need to stop listening and go read it. And then you can go back and finish <laughs> the podcast. Um, so in transition, uh, and I'm kind of asking selfishly, because I'm in the middle of that right now. Uh, where, what's, what's been the wise, who's been the wise person in the middle of those transitions? Who's Who's guided you through that? And how did they do that? How did they help you to, to step into some of these transitional moments in a healthy way? Mm. Immediately, I think about one of my closest friends. Her name is Melissa. And I remember when we were moving to Canada, she said, I hope you'll just take some time to kind of settle in which, you know, seems sort of obvious, but I'm the kind of person that wants to hit every, I mean, like I wake out of bed and wake up in the morning, get out of bed and I hit the ground running, right? Like transition and sort of any sort of still point, you know, feels like disequilibrium, you know, that I, I feel like I'm kind of 
sometimes know myself best in busyness. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I think it's a very wise thing that my friend Melissa said, you know, when you move to Toronto, you know, give yourself, I think she said this when I'm, when we moved. And then she said it a year later when my twins started kindergarten, she said, give yourself some time before you sign up for new commitments. Now, I didn't entirely follow that wisdom, um, and, and I can look back and think, I wish I had. You know, I think there was a wisdom in saying, when you're at a point of transition in your life, transition automatically means uncertainty. And a lot of times, transition, sometimes as you transition out of one thing into another thing, there is sort of an emptying of your life in some ways. You've taken up something new, but like if you take up a new job or even if you take up, you're just taking up new routines, you need time to develop them. The temptation is to just fill that immediately with something to kind of make you feel productive or that your life is meaningful or just to have something on the calendar. And um, so that's kind of the friend that I was thinking of in terms of those, those transitions. And, and certainly, even now, I do spiritual direction. We've talked about that a little bit. But that's a person now that I'm really looking to for wisdom. And it's funny because the wisdom that, that Beth often offers to me, Beth Gorham, is an author and also a spiritual director. Um, the wisdom that she offers to me isn't always some, some sort of um, astute kind of insight into my life or into God's wisdom. Sometimes the wisdom is reflecting back to me something that I've said that I don't even realize I think or feel or believe. So in our most recent spiritual direction, she said, um, I feel like I hear you saying that you wish you were working less. And I had been all, the conversation had really been about busyness and feeling a bit overwhelmed and how could I manage everything and where was God and all of that. And I was thinking more in terms of just managing current responsibilities and certainly not about, um, you know, getting rid of current responsibilities. And when she said that to me, I feel like I hear you saying that that you wish you were working less. I actually recognized it to be true. And I said, yeah, I actually think that is what I'm saying. And so that's been something that I've been puzzling over the last couple of weeks. But that's just another example of someone who is speaking wisdom into my life. And I like your question so much, Casey, because it just reminds me that we don't just get wisdom because we sit down with scriptures, although we do, and sit with great books and listen to sermons and podcasts, like those are all sort of solitary pursuits of wisdom. But I think there is something really beautiful to think about the pursuit of wisdom being collaborative, being something that happens in community. And I think that that really gives credence to, you know, what God's doing in the world that he's, that he's, he's called to himself a people. Yeah. And I love what, I love what comes out of that, which is, and this has been a learning in my life, which is that wisdom a lot of times is a lot simpler and far more human. I mean, just mm. bare, deep parts of the soul, very concrete, very primal uh, kind of thing. It's it's not necessarily the most earth shattering thing. It's sometimes it's the thing that you hear and you go, "Oh man, you have okay, yeah, you're right." So it's something that's already kind of banging around in our heads. 
but it's having that other person who's able to pinpoint it and say, don't, for, don't forget this, or don't lose track of this, or you kind of know intuitively in your spirit that this is where you're, this is a move you should make. You should move to a new country, a new city, and you should just get lost in it for a while. Because that's just wise to know where you are. So it, sometimes it, the, we miss the fact that it, it, you know, if we don't draw the line between knowledge and wisdom, we think, oh, well, why would I look to another person? Well, it's because mm. that other person who's is there with a set of life experiences. And um, that's been the hope of, of doing this podcast at all, is that there are so many voices and conversations we could be having. All that to say, you tackle a concept in Teach Us to Want, which is another one of those very primal, deep down things, which is desire. Mm. And something that, you know, I grew up in a, a Southern... Uh, culture and a very conservative church and desire was kind of the thing that got you in trouble. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so as you've, as you've lived with that idea now, you know, in the writing of the book, in the promotion of the book, in what has followed and talking to people who have read it and have questions about it, how have you, how have you been able to more deeply integrate and reach into that concept of, of desire as far as something that's, that has some wisdom to it? Mm-hmm. You know, the book initially, as I was talking to my publisher, we were sort of back and forth a book about desire or is this a book about prayer? Because I think that's kind of where the question really lodged itself in my own life, kind of in the everyday. Like I had all the suspicions that you did, you know, I should absolutely not want because if I, um, if I allow myself to want, like I will drive myself off a cliff in like five seconds, (laughs) you know, give me an inch and I will take a mile when it comes to sort of illicit sort of desires kind of thing. And that is all, that all seems very right and true in some ways, like that you should of course flee from the things that would cause you to sin or, you know, betray your allegiance to God. I mean, it sounds right that we should run far from things, yeah, that that are corrupting. But I guess the thing is, is desire always corrupting? And I think when I looked at prayer, specifically the ways people pray in scripture, I saw it all, I saw so much desire in their prayers. I just couldn't get it past the fact that Abraham prayed with so much desire and honesty I couldn't see any other way of um, interpreting Hannah's prayer, except that it was a prayer of desire. And just all throughout Scripture, and even Jesus um, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane that that God would take this cup of suffering from him, and yet will yielding his desire to to God. And so I thought there's got to be a deeper wisdom than simply the rejection of desire. And that is ultimately, you know, it ultimately landed on the Lord's Prayer as this way of looking at um, an invitation into not only God's wisdom, but God's desire Um, and our desire as well. It's almost like this place where we get to practice 
articulating um, our desires becoming God's, if that makes sense. So, you know, just, you know, the prayer opens and you, you, you step into the desire um, to want God's kingdom coming and want his name to be made holy. And to step into that means to, you know, sort of confront the ways that you really want your kingdom to come. Holy and famous in the world. And I mean, and you haven't even gotten to forgive us our sins, you know, as we forgive those who sin against us. So there's this orientation at the opening of the prayer to the desires that God has for the world and for us and our living in it and his wisdom. And and there is also um, this invitation to be completely human, you know, the, the second half of the prayer kind of turns in this direction of just human need and vulnerability, you know, give us this day our daily bread. God, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get hungry. I live in this body. Forgive us our sins. And as we first forgive those who sin against us, again, this other nod toward just what it means to be human and to live in, an, in a relationship with God that is often severed by our own stupidity and rebellion and relationships with others that are severed in those ways. So that's sort of the way that Teach Us the, to Want came into being was um, my own suspicion of desire, my recognition that in scripture people prayed with desire. How could I reconcile these things? The Lord's Prayer kind of started to give me language for that. Yeah. Yeah. You say in the book, desire is primal. To be human is to want. Consider Mm. wanting is the earliest language we learn. Mm. Uh, People with kids can definitely get close to that. And that childlikeness in us uh, is part of where desire comes from, is those are some (laughs) very human things that we want. And uh, it seems to me, too, that in the prayer, Jesus assumes that God's kingdom coming is the thing that all of us are really looking for. Mm. That being done here and now, what's being done where he is, is actually the greatest thing that could ever happen. Uh, And as a person who really respects Dallas Willard, there has always been that thread in him to say, uh, let's let that that's happening there be happening here, uh, which is powerful. Mm. So you went from Teach Us to Want to another book that has been really powerful because I think the time um, from everything from uh, talking about situations with refugees throughout the world to, you know, people rediscovering this Huga concept uh, Mm. from our Norwegian and, and you know, (laughs) Scandinavian neighbors, uh, this idea of keeping place. Is, um, and for me right now, I, I, I haven't talked much about this, but you know, our family is getting ready to move and we're talking about buying houses and things like that. And it's amazing to me how disorienting it is to think yeah. about giving up a place and going to another one. When you made the transition, how much of the transition between the U.S. and Canada is reflected personally for you in keeping place? Oh, the whole book is, is is born out of the last six and a half years of um, acute impermanence. You know, this this 
this way that, and, and different perhaps than your situation. I mean, we came to Canada thinking two to three years, this will be fun. And then, you know, then it was another year and then extending the visa another year and, and the desire to stay, but that not really being in our control. We'd come with my husband's company and there were lots of things that just had to happen to, to make it possible for us to stay. And so it wasn't really up, up to us. So you're, we were really in this place of tension of we'd like to make this our home, but I, can it be? And will it be? And, and, and where, where is home? You know, is it Toronto? We rent a house here. We, we have a, um, a work visa that expires on a certain date. Is this home for us? Is, is home back in the Western suburbs of Chicago where we own a house, but we no longer live where we have family. Um, so the, yeah, keeping place is absolutely born out of that. And one of my friends actually just recently said, you know, um, because things have, I guess I should say that things for us have changed now in Toronto since keeping place was published. We, we do have permanent residency in Canada, which essentially means we have a green card. We can stay for as long as we want, as long as we keep renewing that. And um, we did just recently buy a house and um, we are putting down more permanent roots. And my friend said to me, you know, if all those things had been true, I'm not sure like that you had, that you owned a house, that you had permanent residency. I don't know if keeping place would have been the same book. And I, 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 I totally think that's true. I think the book is written with such deep longing for home and not having that feel realized in my life. And then to look at the story of God and to see that, that he is, he is the homemaker and that he's promising home to his people and, and that, that we can see that in scripture. And it was, it, the book was written, I think, and it, it ended up like, like any book, like probably your own book, right? That we write these things so much for ourselves sometimes. And then in God's great, you know, mercy, mercy and sovereignty, somehow he uses it for other people too. So would you say, what, what level of feeling do you have as far as that? How do I want to say this? How much has that pilgrim feeling diminished for you? You know, you talk about having permanent residence. You talk about buying a house. Has has that pilgrim feeling gone away? Is it starting to, are you starting to feel like, I can't remember a time when we weren't here, when we weren't landed? How, how is that going? Mm -hmm. How is that, would you describe that right now? Such a great question, because I actually think that now the, the test, if you will, I can't think of a better word, maybe the, the spiritual practice will be to continue to live into a pilgrim identity, you know, because this is how the saints of old looked at themselves, you know, like in Hebrews, like I've been teaching a lot through Hebrews and thinking a lot about it. And obviously, as I was writing the book, that, you know, they were, they were all waiting on a better world. You know, they all knew that this, they, that they were strangers and aliens, that they were going toward a, they had a, they had a homeland that they were moving toward and a better city to occupy. And I think that is, continues to be so important for all of us. It doesn't matter if you are or are not permanent in a place, if you're still living in the place, you know, where your parents grew up and you're raising your children in the same city, all of us need to assume a pilgrim identity because it, it actually, 
actually orients us rightly to the world. It, it doesn't orient us in a way of detachment, which is, I think, how I used to think of it, that, you know, faithful Christian living was, you know, seeking heaven and never really thinking about the everyday earthly kinds of things. I don't think that's what God has for us. I don't think he has an attitude of detachment for us, but I think an open-handedness and a kind of realism about what this world is meant to give us. You know, that just because you buy a house in a city, like you don't resolve all of your inner human restlessness. I mean, the fact remains that like it's true, but, and I know it to be true, but we do all as humans sort of reach and clutch for things that that we want to sort of soothe kind of these deep longings this deep inner restlessness that's actually meant to like um, I'm reading um, Schwemann's for the life of the world right now and he said the end of all desire is God and what happened in the garden is that man ceased to be hungry for God And I find that to be so incredibly beautiful and a reminder for me that while we plant ourselves permanently, hopefully, in the city, and I think think that's for, there, there are a lot of beautiful reasons to do that, to become a good neighbor, to love our city and our place well. At the same time, I don't want to cease to be hungry for God. And, And having a pilgrim identity reminds me to be hungry for him, reminds me that this world isn't meant to satisfy all my desires. You, you sound as if you're redefining the concept of what home really means, because I, I know that there are probably people who would say, no, no, once we get the, the quote unquote house, there's, there's sort of a um, exhibitionism of houses with, from fixer upper mm. to, uh, you know, magazine covers to Pinterest to whatever, there's this feeling like if I just got the right house with the, the right white trim and the right, you know, <laughs> distressed reclaimed wood table, then I would truly have a spiritual life. And, and then on mm-hmm. the other end of it, there are folks who home is not so much the structure and the studs and the, the roof, but it's the people and it's the conflict and it's the dysfunction and it's something they mm. avoid but it sounds like you're de- you're redefining what the concept of home is uh, rather than it being a place that is final it's a almost like a launching off point it's a place that could change it's a place that could move but ultimately it's a place where there's there's something sticky something something tangible, something hardy that sort of sticks to you as you're a part of it. Does that, is, would that be accurate? I think that, yeah, I think, you know, I guess the language that I, I tend toward is, um, shadow and reality, you know, that, um, that our homes now are kind of shadows, foreshadows. I mean, a, a beautiful Christian home, like it's not perfect, but it's supposed to be a foreshadowing, right? Of the reality of the home that we have waiting for us. And so, and, 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 and that gives me a way to, again, not to detach from my everyday reality, you know, my my husband, my children, my house even, you know, like in my neighborhood and, and the street that I live on, all of this matters to God. This isn't just like some kind of temporary holdover, right? As if it didn't matter. It's temporary, but it still matters. And um, 
that's kind of the way that I've been thinking about it. You know, when I when I talk about home and I look at scripture to say, you know, what is home? I think there, there are these three kind of dimensions. There's place, there's people, and then there's God. You know, that's what we see in the garden. It's a place and it's a place of human community and it's planning with God. We just aren't experiencing connection to those three things in the fullest way possible. We're getting, we're getting taste of it here and now. And there, that's a good reason to root ourselves in our places and to develop meaningful human relationships and to work toward having communion with God. But we're not going to fully realize home um, yet. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, there's a quote from your book that I think will probably help people who are listening who are like, okay, what what is what do I do with my whole house, home, pilgrim thing? But you say many of us seem to be recovering the sacred if ordinary. I like that, the mm. sacred if ordinary, beauty of place. And I think that fights back a little bit against the Pinterest fixer-upper culture. And uh, it says that, that place can be very simple. It can be mobile. Uh, it doesn't have to be. Uh, it doesn't have to be anything other than uh, the place where we are and the place mm. where we meet God, um, which I th- I think is I-, I think is helpful. But it also shows mm-hmm. um, if you put your two works together and kind of our conversation today, there's in you. It sounds like in you there's a trajectory of. Uh, longing. So mm. desire is part of it. Um, the longing for home is part mm. of it. So I wonder what you would do uh, or say, uh, what wisdom would you share with somebody who's listening to this to say, how do I, how do I put my desires in order? Uh, I, want, I want what you're talking about. I want that pilgrim nature, but I also want that place that I feel is ordinary and sacred. How would you how would you guide somebody based on all the stuff that you've written and everything that you've uh, engaged in conversation wise in both books? How would you guide somebody towards that the wisdom of that longing and desire? Uh, how would you help them to order that in their own lives? Mm. <clears throat> I like how you asked about ordering our desires, because that is language from Augustine, who talked a lot about desire. And he said, you know, that often, you know, the, the, um, the exercise, if you will, in our spiritual lives isn't which desires are good and which are bad. I mean, sure, there are some that are bad that they have no place, right, in the list. Often, though, it's more a sense of ordering things rightly. And, um, and I don't think that we do that, as you say, as we've kind of already talked about. I don't think that we do that solitarily. I think that's a work that we do in community because sometimes we don't even know the desires and longings of our own hearts. Just as I was saying to my spiritual director, talking, to her, talking, talking, and talking to her, And then she reflected back a longing to me that I didn't even recognize. And so there's a, there's, this work of kind of identifying and examining our desires has to happen in community. It actually also really depends on very honest prayer with God. And again, it's funny how this conversation is kind of coming full circle, but so often we go to God in very abstract ways. You know, we maybe talk to him about the things that we think he wants to hear about, or we 
use words that sound familiar in our churches. But what we don't do is bear our very selves in in his presence. And I don't think that we can rightly order our desires until we come into the presence of God, at least trying by his grace to disclose ourselves to him. And I think what happened in, with, in conversation with my spiritual director is what happens to me all the time in prayer, to go to God and to talk to God. And then all of a sudden, I feel this kind of nudge from the Holy Spirit to illuminate maybe a longing that I haven't even, that I haven't even identified. The other thing that happens to me often in prayer is that maybe I've identified a longing, but I haven't identified any agency in that longing, if that makes any sense, that I want Mm. to kind of hand it over to God, like, God, here's my longing for a reconciled relationship with so-and-so, and God hands back to me, I'd like for you to, you know, make a phone call or visit or whatever it is, or confess your sin, who knows? So there's, we don't rightly order our desires by ourselves. We have to do that in community and we have to do that in communion with God. And the amazing thing is, is that there's nothing that God doesn't know, (laughs) right? There's nothing that he doesn't know. There's no fear in the sense of, um, I don't have to come in, like God isn't ready to sort of drop the hammer because I don't long for the things that he longs for. I get to come into his presence, disclose what's really there, and then say, okay, Lord, that's now it's yours to deal with in the sense of there's a deep work of healing. To your point, as we've already talked about, you know, desire being primal, desire operating at these almost unreachable, inaccessible places of our soul. Like you don't just stop wanting or start wanting by dint of your own will, right? It's just not that easy. But God, by his grace, can operate on our desires, right? He can reform them, redeem them, change them, fulfill them, console them. Um, so that's a really big question, but I guess that's at least where how I would start the conversation. Sure. That's good. That's beautiful. Thank you for taking some time to talk. I've, I appreciate it. I know, I know people listening have appreciated it too. So we're going to give them a chance to find you online and uh, pick up your books and things like that. But I really appreciate you taking the time to talk today. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, well, that was enjoyable, man. And it's funny, uh, you know, I started off this conversation with her talking about coming to Canada and staying with her. The funny thing is, uh, is that I actually did ask her. (laughs) I was going to an event in Toronto and said, you know, I don't, I don't know where I'm going to be, but if I end up being there for a while, um, looking for a place to stay. And she said, you could definitely come and stay with our family. And uh, I was so generous about that. So the joke at the beginning was funny, and but it was funnier based on like, okay, I'm actually going to do this. <laughs> I didn't end up staying with her uh, dynamic situation. Uh, the situations, the dynamics of the, of the trip didn't uh, allow for that. But um, 
But it was really good to have this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, Like I said, you can find information on Jen in the notes, uh, links to her books, uh, where she's writing, blogging, what she's doing now. Um, She's a great speaker if you're interested, if you're in a spot where you're trying to find someone to come and speak to a group, she would be a great person to put in that role. So uh, if you are a subscriber, thank you so much for that. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, uh, would you do that on iTunes or Google Play? We'd really appreciate that. Also, would love it if you like what's going on. Uh, give a rating and a review on iTunes. That would be fantastic. Or if you just have some things that you're like, Casey, I would love to hear you talk about this or interview this person. You can always contact me through my website, caseytigret.com. I would love your feedback because you know what? This is the first time I've ever done this and I, you know, honestly don't know what I'm doing all the time. So any help I can get from anyone, I think everybody's your teacher. Uh, So I would love to hear from you. So until next time, friends, be well, live wisely. Peace. Peace.